Hi everyone, I have another fun interview for you today. I know I've been on an interview streak, but I am having such a great time talking to lots of different types of people. Today I interview Dr. Katie Peplin. She is an academic coach. She's a Thrive PhD. She started her own business. So we talk about what an academic coach is, the types of services that she provides. I just heard a crash. My dog did something. The types of services that she provides. We talk about navigating graduate school, imposter syndrome, We talk about starting a business as an academic and some of the things to think about. And then at the end, we talk about cute animal videos for real. This had to do with her PhD research. So we talk about it from an academic perspective. But I actually find the use of animals in media really interesting. So it was a really fun conversation. So I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Katie Peplin of Thrive PhD. One more final, final thing. I released my Confusion to Clarity course this past December, and I got some feedback from you guys that it just wasn't a good time. And for some of you, it was out of your budget range. So I wanted to make this course accessible to more people. I also did a gigantic oopsies with my email list. And long story short, there was a conflict in between emails and subscriber confirmation. So people weren't getting the emails about this course, even though they signed up for the video series. So what I'm doing for the rest of January is I am making the recordings of this course available for purchase, and it's going to be for $127. So in December, it did have group coaching and stuff, but it was $4.95. So this is a really big, deep discount, and I'm doing this because this is really all of the 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 meat and potatoes that I want to give you that you guys need to know before you start this career. So this is for January only. So I hope you sign up today to get the help you need. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Okay. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. So excited to be here. So you are an academic coach. Is that how you would describe yourself? Yes. A coach for academics. I myself don't often feel like an academic anymore, but I definitely coach academics, if that makes sense. Yeah. Can you tell us what that is exactly? Yeah. So the best way to kind of explain it is that I am the, what I like to pitch it as is the best version of your chair and mentor and kind of supervisor all wrapped into one. So not only am I helping you guide through the graduate school process, I'm also sharing like tips and strategies and tools to help support it so that ultimately you have a sustainable whole life that includes more than just your grad school work, but also you're crushing that too. That's great. And how, so you said, you said you're no longer in academia. So you, you got your PhD and you did it in screen arts and cultures. So can you talk about that transition from 
getting your PhD and graduating. And then how did you decide to become an academic coach? Cause it's not really a career. I, th- I think it's a, like a new career, right? I, you're the, you're is, one of the yeah, few so ones I know about. There has definitely been like a growth in this particular industry yeah. since I got started. I graduated in May of 2016. So we're coming up on five years now, which is sort of hard to believe. And also it feels like yesterday, but I knew early on in the PhD program that I wasn't going to be a long-term academic, most likely that if the cards fell in the exact right way, but I was married and my husband is a software engineer. And we always knew that kind of in the big picture of our family, it would make so much more sense for us to travel with his job <laughs> that it would just sort of move every 18 months for mine. So I, during the PhD, was really proactive in kind of exploring other careers and thinking about what else I might want to do. And I graduated shortly after. So my, the last term of my PhD, my husband was living in Pittsburgh and I was finishing up in Michigan. And when I landed here, I was burned out and exhausted and I didn't necessarily want to stay in the environments that made me feel like that. (laughs) So I kind of went the other way and I was lucky enough to be able to take a little bit of a break, but I like folded towels at a yoga studio and temped at like a medical office for a while and basically started coaching kind of on a LARP. I posted something on my Facebook that was like, Hey, I really miss grad students and working with grad students. If anybody wants help with their dissertation, let me know. And some kind of friends of friends took me up on that. And it's been steadily building since that kind of like fateful fall day. Wow. That's great. So when you, when you were taking your, your temporary positions afterwards, did you feel, I don't, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but did you feel bad about that? Because a lot of people I think have this vision of, you know, going through graduate school or, or getting out of college and then getting a job right away. And on my podcast, I talked to a lot of people where that doesn't happen. Like, like one person I just talked to recently, she had to work at Starbucks after getting her mask. So I love hearing these stories. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily something that I was like jumping up and down and telling everybody I know, like, (laughs) Hey, I'm really excited to be in all of these temp positions, but I didn't feel shame about it. I guess. Like I sort of realized that it was more important for me to feel like I had some space to make a decision about my career than kind of jump into things that didn't fit. So I had trained pretty extensively during my PhD as an educational designer to work in like teaching and learning centers. And I still am um, pretty active in that world and consult for the center that I used to work for and still really love program design and working with teachers. But there are only so many learning centers in the city of Pittsburgh. (laughs) And I interviewed with a few and it's just, it wasn't going to be a good fit for them or for me. And so there was this kind of sense that like my plan A didn't really work out and I was in no rush to jump into a panic plan B, if that makes sense. So I mm-hmm. definitely was very purposeful in figuring out like what things I liked, what things fueled me and what aligned with my skills, even if they were contexts that I wasn't really necessarily expecting. I love that because at least I felt this way during the end of my PhD, like, like people expected you to apply for jobs and, and to have a job lined up. And I was like, I'm just trying to finish like, (laughs) and breathe in between. 
So why do you think so many people need help? Like why, why would anyone need an, a coach during their PhD? If you have your advisor and your committee, what would you right. need a coach for? I mean, I know the answer, but <laughs> I think it's a really good question because a lot of my clients come and sort of like take exploratory sessions with me or in our first meetings, they feel really ashamed about it. They're like, I feel like I shouldn't need you, which is kind of an interesting like vibe to walk into any new relationship with somebody. <laughs> but I completely understand why. And the reason that I think so many people could benefit from a coach, especially in grad school, is that I would say 70 to 80% of my clients are people that are smart enough and work hard enough to have kind of made it with whatever base learning, reading, organization, research, writing skills they may be gained in the first couple of years of college. Most of the time, they're people who have traditionally been really good at school, pretty good at finishing their assignments, and all of the sudden, they kind of get like ejected into this world where they have to self-pace, pick their own projects, mm -hmm. design their own systems for kind of organizing information, keep things on time. And there's not a lot of structure most of the time to help you sort of make that transition from like a really structured grad seminar where there's a syllabus and you know what to read and you know what to do to this kind of like come back when you have a dissertation or come back when you've got a research study, <laughs> like come back when you have a plan for four and a half years of experiments and three publications. So I like to explain to my potential clients that it makes sense that they don't know how to do this yet because in a lot of ways they've never really had to. And yeah. Grad school is so <laughs> different than undergrad. And I think it's, if you, yeah. if you haven't done it, then people think you're just like taking more courses and, you know, it's just a glorified undergrad and it's not the core, or at least for the sciences, our courses weren't even really emphasized. It was kind of like just something you got out of the way. And really yeah. it was about your project. And it's the first time you're leading a project in something that nobody's ever done before. And, and, right. and you kind of have this little direction. People are just like, I, I thought it would be like an apprenticeship where I'd be like learning alongside my advisor, but yes. it, and maybe in the beginning a little bit, but then there were points where I had to make major decisions and your advisor, your advisor is just like, you got to figure it out. And, and yeah, no one teaches you that. And I think the best case scenario is that you have an advisor that maybe gives you a little bit of skills or like maybe helps you or shares things. But the majority of clients that I have would, I say that their supervisors sort of fall in the like benign, benignly neglectful stage. <laughs> they don't mean to make it feel like they've abandoned their grad students, but that's how so many of my clients feel that they've just sort of been like left in the wilderness, so to speak, to kind of gain all of these skills. And there are many people for whom they grew up with academics or they've seen it firsthand, but like my family, I didn't have any academics. My parents mm -hmm. kind of understood after a couple of years what I was doing, but like my extended family, my cousins truly believe that I made a movie <laughs> like instead of getting a PhD in film studies and sort of, and so I didn't have anybody to help me navigate like comprehensive exams, for example. And so I'm really, I'm really sensitive to the kind of clients who are caught in between the gap of what they don't know and what their advisors or universities assume that they came in knowing. 
Yeah. And I think just, I agree with you. So many advisors, I think unintentionally abandon their students. And I, I was told there are two types of advisors where one is like more of a micromanager and the other one kind of just leaves you. But in my experience, I've mostly seen advisors just kind of like leave their graduate students to figure it out amongst themselves. And if you're a graduate student out there thinking about getting coach, I mean, there shouldn't be any shame in it because like we don't like Olympians don't have shame for having a coach. Like they don't know how to get to the level they need to get to. And it's someone to guide you through it. Yeah. And sometimes you just need somebody who has a little bit of distance. Like your advisor is great, but you're often really close to them. And especially if you're sharing a lab or if they're kind of like building projects with you, or you have some responsibility over things that they ultimately have grants for, it can be, it's not a clean distance relationship sometimes. (laughs) And so it really helps to be able to have somebody who's completely outside that can say like, yes, this is normal grad student, student struggles. We can kind of support this or actually it sounds like your advisor's doing a pretty good job. How can we kind of reimagine the relationship so that you're not so much at each other's throats. And then sometimes I actually come in and I'm like, okay, we need to intervene here. Like these are the university services. This isn't okay. And I think that it's really graduate students are so conditioned to think that if there's something that feels hard or wrong, that they should just be able to fix it. Like that you should just be able to study more or work harder and it will sort of resolve. And often more hours or more focus or more coffee isn't the answer. And it moves you farther away from where you should be. So if somebody does have a difficult advisor or they're not getting along with their advisor, like, do you have any general recommendations that you offer or is it very person specific? Yeah. I mean, it really depends. Like a relationship with a parent or a boss, there's as many different structures or kind of like advisor styles or parenting styles out there. So it really can be tricky to navigate. And so often my best advice is to think about expanding your team of mentors so that your supervisor isn't like the sole person that you turn to for everything. If your advisor is the person who gives you all your career advice, you know, copy edits all of your manuscripts, approves all of your research, has a lot of say in what your personal life or your schedule looks like, like that's a lot of power for one person. And as grad students, it's not like we have a ton of extra time to expand that network. But the more people that you have, you can kind of bounce ideas off of or who are invested in your development, the easier it is to kind of pick between perspectives and pick the thing that feels aligned to you as opposed to just doing whatever your advisor says when they say it. It's funny that you said it's a relationship like like parents because actually you kind of do feel like a kid in the beginning with your advisor because i don't i don't i think it's more nurturing than like a, having a boss you're more it's more of a personal investment i guess because your research is so close to you and you're right at the end you kind of feel like oh i'm going to along with my advisor that some advisors and some grad students struggle with that transition from kind of like kid to grown up more than others and i know that i talk a lot to clients who feel like 
who kind of have the opposite that are that are saying like you know this person is micromanaging me I feel like I can't do anything without running it by them like my quote-unquote academic curfew is so strict like I can't <laughs> get anything done and then there are other parents who are just like completely hands-off and are like come back when you win an NSF grant until then I don't really want to talk to you but this is grad school and specifically PhDs are this really strange moment where you do enter as a student in a lot of ways here to learn like skills, here to build your own research portfolio. And at the end, in theory, you emerge as a colleague. And I think that can be a really sort of fraught transition sometimes. I know that I personally felt like I was a colleague in my department when they wanted free labor or like less expensive labor. Like they were more than happy to have me be an expert if it saved the department time by having me write a grant or, you know, step in and be in this committee. But if there was something where I wanted to have a little more power and it wasn't convenient for them, then I was a student. Then it was, you know, you're just a grad student or this isn't really what we do here or you're going to need to search. So it can be really a difficult, not at all linear process. Yeah. And so you offer one-on-one coaching. So what we've been talking about, and then you also have a community too. Can you tell us about that? I do. So the community was kind of the first project and it remains the most steady thing that I've done. And I love it. It's the place I always tell people, it's the place where I go when I need a boost, <laughs> like when I'm really struggling or when I'm having a bad focus day, it just takes me a couple of seconds to like pop into the community and be like, oh, okay, like I can reset. But the community was really born out of the fact that so many grad students, including myself, wanted a space to be in a community with other grad students where it wasn't necessarily their department community or even Mm -hmm. their field community. So the Thrive PhD community is run on mighty networks. You don't have to tie it to a social like network profile. I don't even require that people use their real names or their locations. So there's this real sense of kind of community without so much competition because people can be pretty honest. Like, hey, this day was trash. I watched eight hours of Bling Empire without, you know, taking a break. (laughs) How could, you know, can somebody help me start. And so it is this place where it's really, you can bring your whole human self there. And I I love that. So there are daily work togethers, there are work retreats, there are weekly coaching calls where I answer questions, but it's only $5 a month because I think it's really important to recognize that grad student resources, time and money are super limited and not everybody can afford a coach. So this, this is kind of my way to both help grad students feel a lot less alone and like they aren't the only ones who can sometimes really struggle, especially during the pandemic, to like get themselves organized and back to work. But also that it's helpful to have a coach that can sort of step in and say like, okay, like here's some tools or here's some other things to try, that it's not just sort of grads venting to each other because that has a place, but it's definitely not the most sustainable model. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what is a work retreat? A work retreat is a, well, we have one tomorrow. So it's funny that you asked that. They are sort of six hours with breaks. There's a lunch break sort of built up. And I am pretty flexible about like what a work retreat is. So I know that there's lots of people on the internet that will say like, okay, this is a writing retreat. We post our writing goals. And my rule 
is that anything that moves you forward counts as work. And so sometimes people are teaching or sometimes they're preparing research, but it's just a way to kind of make the day feel a little bit different. And I find there's something special about saying like, okay, there's a retreat on Saturday, so I'm not going to clean my house. I'm not going to schedule anything. Like I'm going to be there from 11 to five and really make some progress. So we have people this week who are planning for March Madness, which is like a big month of free resources that I'm doing around academic writing. There's another person whose dissertation is due in two weeks. And so they're doing all of their footnotes on, on Saturday, but it's kind of a chance to make a special day plan for it. And then really kind of buckle down and get some work done. And then you all go on the network and I guess you don't have video because it's anonymous or do you? Well, so some people use video. We've been kind of experimenting because before we were, we've used Slack before we've done all sorts of different things. I'm, I am a little bit of like a tech flutter by. I don't know how to best describe it. If there's a new tool, I want to try it basically. And so oh, I'm the opposite. I'm like, Oh no, there's a new tool. I have to learn something new. And I'm like, let's see what this is about. So um, what I'm experimenting with this week to sort of see if we like it is this new website called gather where I've seen it kind of around and they've done conferences and stuff on it. But basically it's like a little map and you have a little icon and you sort of use like video game controls to walk around the world but if you get close to people your video turns on and so like people could gather in like different rooms so it's a little but you can also walk away from people if you don't want to be on video and so it's still like a sense of gathering but there's a lot a little bit more control over whether you want to be on video or not so I'm trying to listen because I know many, many people are Zoom overloaded, but that also lots of people equally are feeling really isolated and would just like to see some other faces. (laughs) So I'm trying to always find a good balance for that. What are some of the most common questions that you get in your Q&As? Ooh, they really vary. A lot of them boil down to scheduling or kind of how can I make the best routine or how can I optimize the two hours that I have during the day to do X, Y, or Z project. I have a lot of questions about networking and kind of like expanding your presence in the field. A lot of questions about like academic writing and fear because I think it can be really scary for people. So there's a lot of, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome or kind of normalizing that not all of us were born clear and jargon-free academic writers. Yeah, I think imposter syndrome is so rampant in academia, or at least in in my field. And when I became a postdoc, it was funny because I would be around these stellar graduate students and they would kind of like reveal their secrets to me because <laughs> I, I was seen as like a benign because I wasn't a graduate student. So yeah. I wasn't like they didn't worry about like me seeing them in a, in a negative way, I guess. And I wasn't their advisor. So they could like open up to me and almost, I think like everyone has it maybe unless like you're 1%. (laughs) Yes. You don't have it. (laughs) We, we often talk about how the self-confidence is sort of the last step in that, in that, that transformation too. So I know that a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about somebody who wanted to build more confidence in their writing. And they were like, I sit down and I just, I'm like, who am I? And so we talked about this idea of kind of like playing a role when you sit down to write and be like, okay, like today I'm not writing as myself. I'm writing as 
the most confident person in my field that I've ever encountered. And I'm just going to practice writing from that voice. And I think one of the things that's really cool is that the person who is practicing confidence often does very similar things to the person who actually has innate confidence. <laughs> and that mm -hmm. one of the fastest ways to build that confidence in your own work or sort of your own um, qualifications is to act like you have them and let the feelings catch up. Yeah, I actually give my students very similar advice and it's it's based on stuff that I learned that you first have to like be the embodiment of what you want to be and do things to elicit those feelings. So it might not be, you might not be confident in science, but you could do something else that makes that you're really confident and then like transfer that feeling over and, and use that when you're doing something like writing. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's really great advice. Yeah. Practice, fake it till you make it. Do you have any other advice for imposter syndrome? I think the, one of the things that ends up being most freeing when I sort of work with clients around this specific issue is being aware of all of the ways that it's not, that it's systemic, that it's built in. It's it's like, like they say in the software development world, it's a, it's a feature, it's not a bug of academia. So if you're a person who's kind of sitting in a seminar and thinking, who am I to even be here? Knowing that that's not a consequence of who you are in this space, but it's a lot of what the space is sort of structured and cultured to bring out in people. That academia specifically for all of its talk about being an inclusive place and there are pockets definitely that do good work in that is also a hierarchical place that is, is mm -hmm. sort of steeped in power dynamics and punching down and making people feel like they're not qualified to enter that conversation. So knowing that, knowing that it's common and that it's baked in doesn't soothe the feeling, but it does help you kind of understand that it's a normal consequence of some of the academic culture, as opposed to something that's like uniquely and individually wrong with you that you've brought into this conversation. Yeah. I think that helps a lot for people to know that, that they're not struggling alone, that almost everyone feels it. And yeah, I know it is, it is weird. It's something about academia and like the jargon makes it worse. And you, you just, you can always find somebody who you think is smarter than you, or they're, you know, they're just at a different level than you. They have more publications or whatever, but doesn't mean that you can't be there one day. Right. And I think that because there's so much credential creep in academia, that it's really hard. The bar is always moving <laughs> for like what grad students should accomplish. So I know that in my field, a lot of the professors who worked in my department when I was getting a grad, like my graduate degree, had never published a book or had maybe published one book three years ago, or, you know, 30 years ago, they maybe had two or three publications and they were the quote unquote, like leading stars of the field, but that we were also regularly turning down job candidates that weren't published enough because they only had two or three publications in our top journals. And so it's so hard. The bar is so high and the temptation to spend every minute chasing after all of those accomplishments is so, so strong that it really takes more fortitude and kind of internal confidence to be like, okay, like what if I didn't? spend every moment of my waking life chasing all of these publications, all of these grants, all of this teaching experience. Like there will always be something or 
some opportunity that somebody else has that you don't. And it's, it, there's, there's no bottom to that hole. Yeah, you're right. The shifting baselines is, it's so dramatic. Like one of my, he wasn't on my committee. He was next door to us. One of um, the professors I was close to, he was older. So he retired when um, I was there. And when he was a graduate student, he made graphs by hand. (laughs) They didn't have all this technology. And even just like going to the library and looking up journal articles, like you just, everything just took so much longer that you, you were able to take your time more and digest things more slowly. And there wasn't, there wasn't so much pressure to produce, produce, produce. Right. And I think that because there are so few tenure track jobs, it can really compound because not only are you trying to give yourself the best shot at an academic job, if that's what you're kind of aiming for, you also need to be really well prepared to transition into industry or into nonprofits or like there's always mm-hmm. something else that you could be doing. And I think it takes so much more confidence in your values as a person or a human even to be able to say like, okay, I'm allowed to take Saturday off because there will always be something that you could do on a Saturday that would advance some part of your CV or some part of your resume or some sort of your experience. There's always an opportunity to do that. And so it it almost is more work to decide not to and hold that boundary. (laughs) It's funny because I, uh went to biology or, I mean, I chose an alternative career. I think at the time I didn't realize I wanted to be a wildlife biologist, but I saw my dad, he's a, he's a store owner. We own a, we own a family mm-hmm. business and he would always have to carry the weight of his business. Like, like even if he wasn't necessarily working all the time, but he thought about it all the time. Right. And it's you just like, kind of like a burden that you, that you have. And I was like, oh, I never want to be like that. I never want to have that. And it's so funny because in science, it's like being an entrepreneur because yeah. you're, you could always be working. You could always be doing something better. And it, and now I am an entrepreneur <laughs> and you are too. I am. Yeah. So a lot of the skills that I practiced in grad school, I still have to practice as, as an entrepreneur and be like, okay, do I actually want to keep doing this tonight at 10 PM? Or do I want to try and read a book for fun? I think that that is sort of a condition of being alive in the 21st century as much as anything else. But like, yeah, it's difficult to, it's difficult to give yourself the kind of rest that you need to be your best at the thing that you want to be really good at. Do you like the business part of things? More so than I ever expected I would actually. So I get people sometimes who want to know, like, do I like it? Or what would, what's my best advice for people who are interested in kind of building their own businesses around sort of academic skills, whatever that looks like for them. And I think that the best advice I have and the thing that's really wrong, true for me, all of like all of these years, the five years or whatever, is that if you don't like the structures of your business, that it's really hard to keep going. (laughs) So I know a lot of coaches who hate the marketing and they hate the invoicing and they hate the sort of tech that comes up and they hate having to like, they just want to do the, the, like the actual one-on-one of the coaching with people. And it makes it really hard because you either have to pay someone to do that work for you, or you have to learn how to not hate it so much. And I've been really lucky that I like that part of it. 
And so it's a little bit easier for me and it's, it's kept costs down. Like it's meant that I've had a lot more freedom in my business because I wasn't having to pay somebody to, you know, run my website for me or like make all of my, my graphics or do my marketing. It helps that the curiosity wanting to learn more part of my grad school career could shift to this whole new area of kind of like entrepreneurship. I agree. I think it's really fun too. How how did you learn how to do that stuff? Like how to run your own business and stuff? What, what kinds of things did you do? I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Like I am lucky to be married to a software engineer. And so a lot of the kind of things that we talk about in our house are the, the products aren't the same, but the product development pipeline is. And so there's a lot of things that I've kind of watched as Chris has worked at startups or at sort of bigger companies or like different management. Like I've had a lot of opportunities to see how teams function or how people work within teams or like how you could take a product from here to there. I've read a lot of books, but mostly I just try stuff and I use it all as data. So like if I get an idea for a course and I, you know, start to advertise it and nobody is interested, like that's really good data. (laughs) What I think is interesting, like maybe it's not pitched well. So I'm constantly walking this line between trying stuff out, letting things build, and also just really trying to like be as ruthless as I can about following that feedback and sort of growing in the directions that the growth is available, as opposed to being like, this is what it is. People are going to get it or they're not. What kind of new direction are you going in? Or are you going to create new products? Or are you going to stick with the membership? What, what yeah, does the future Yeah, so the membership like? actually has been, like I redesigned it over the beginning of the year and sort of relaunched it very early in January. And it used to be, I guess this is a good example of what I was talking about. It used to be like a 12-week program where people would come in with a cohort, but it was a lot of stress on me because I had to run enrollment four times a year and like it was billing that I did and there were options to continue. And there were always new, there was just a lot of overhead. And so I was like, well, what if it were easier? (laughs) Like, What if I just let the Mighty Networks, the site that I use, handle the membership and people can come in and go and we just like experiment with, and I'll use a little bit of that time that I was spending on just sort of the admin that I needed to do that didn't provide any value to my members on new events or like new. And so I launched like five or six new different kinds of things we do in the community in January, because I was like, okay, I would rather be spending this time investing in the community than trying to like negotiate who comes in and who comes out and when. So I think the the biggest challenge for me as a business owner is that I am very aware that grad student budgets vary pretty wildly, but that there hardly is a grad student that I've encountered that's like, I don't have a budget or like budgets don't mean anything to me. So I spend a lot of time trying to think about what the best balance between giving people really high quality information and not having it be one-on-one. Because eventually one-on-one, I have to charge a certain amount of money for that to make sense in terms of like what the, the balance of my business is. And so I'm always thinking like, okay, can I put people in groups? Can I have courses? Could there be workbooks? Could there be all sorts of different things to try and give as much really quality information as I can in a way that people can do it on their own time. And then I'm not beholden to like this one-on-one transaction. Not that I don't love it. I do. It just, it, 
it's, no, right. You need, you yeah. need to raise your prices if you do one-on-one and are, I mean, that's what they say in the entrepreneurial community, yes. because you can't, you can't replicate yourself and you need to make a certain amount of money. And I don't think a lot of people realize just how expensive this can be, even though it's all digital and online. Like you said, like, like you need a team to help you out. Do, yeah. do you have a team actually, or is it, or no. is it just you? <laughs> it's just me. So I am almost at the breaking point where there are some things that I could use some help with. But I think that because I am so experimental in what I'm trying to do, it's really hard to keep somebody in the flow of that with me. (laughs) Like There are definitely some things that I could offload, I'm sure, but I like it right now that I can have an idea for a course and sort of bring it all up and like put it on the website myself and market it myself and write the blog post for it. And like all of that is all up to me. So there's just mm-hmm. so much more flexibility and it, it's not a small part of it is control too. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> that eventually it won't scale, but right now I'm still at a spot where we haven't reached, reached critical mass yet. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. I do have two virtual assistants, but it's really hard for me to relinquish control. That's that's yeah. really difficult because I want it to be all me. And also our fields are so niche too. It's hard yeah. to get people who can work on the things that you need done, like even like answering emails or, I mean, they need to know like, the answers to the questions that people ask right. me about <laughs> careers or elephants or whatever. You, yeah. can't, you can't just replicate that. It's not going to be like a standard, like, oh, here's an FAQ session section. Right. I wanted to go back to your, to your PhD though. What, so what made you want to go into screen arts and how, like, what is that like to get a PhD in that field? I just have no um, knowledge of that at all. It's wild. So it's not a deep love of film actually. So I'm sure that it's similar in some of the sciences that there are some people who were there and they're like, I love sea turtles and I've just followed sea turtles all the way through. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely like that in sort of media studies too, that there are some people who are just like, I live and breathe movies. And this is a way for me to kind of like professionalize that. I would say that I've always been really interested in languages. And so I had a French minor in my undergrad, but there was something really appealing to me. Like the puzzle that my brain likes to think about is the relationship between like what people understand that they're doing when they watch a piece of media. And I, I, I think a lot about my cousins and their children who are, you know, like 20 ish years younger than me and how, how adept they are at media. And then also how many things they take for granted. Like I remember watching my like baby cousin who was like three use an iPad and being like, how, like what about this sort of was so innate to you, but also having sort of been so immersed in that that never stopping to think like okay like who made this youtube channel or who pays for those like tv youtube like product placement things so i think media literacy was always one of the areas that i just like i can't even now still really interesting to me still really passionate about it but the day-to-day looks a lot like any other sort of humanities person. I was reading a lot. Some of that reading energy was watching things, which was fun. It's always fun when your subject matter 
is something that you would be doing anyways, because it was like, okay, am I watching this kitten video on YouTube for, for research or is this for me? <laughs> and often it was both. <laughs> so that part of it was fun, but it was, I, I gravitated very early on to the teaching part of it. So I love to teach, really miss teaching, still do quite a bit of like adjacent skills, but I think, it's, yeah. Sorry. It's such an interesting time for that type of work, for understanding what's going on yeah. in people's brains when they're watching media. And I just watched the, the social dilemma Oh yeah, um, <laughs> like two weeks ago. And yeah, all this social media is, I mean, I knew this was going on. I knew they were using psychology to make people addicts actually, but I don't watch YouTube, even though I have a YouTube channel, I like hardly yeah. ever watch YouTube videos. And I also listened to this podcast that basically like, yeah, YouTube can radicalize people really slowly and they don't realize it's happening. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's really quite amazing. Yeah. I have a lot of colleagues actually who have kind of transitioned out of academia into media literacy. And it's one of the things that they study actually now is like the path that people will take. And I was reading a really interesting article and I'll see if I can find it so you can put it in the show notes, but about what people mean when they say I did my research on this and sort of like, it was one of the big like talking points about some of the U S political activity or even like the vaccine, for example, they were like, Oh, I did my research on this. You should do your research on that too but if that if that research is a bunch of sort of interconnected thinkers in a space that all subscribe to a very particular worldview it's really easy if that worldview is dominated by misinformation to have that become a closed circuit in the same way that like data can do that too like academia can do that too so I think it's a real balancing act between helping people understand how to consume that critically, but also putting tools in place so that it just is harder to create those little ecosystems that radicalize. I had, somebody told me recently that I need to do my research on um, coyotes. Cause I wrote that the, or I said in the YouTube video that that koi wolves, which is a coyote wolf hybrid is a myth. And what I meant is it's a myth that it's like its own separate species. And I explained okay. <laughs> that of course, coyotes and wolves can hybridize and, and all Eastern coyotes do have some wolf in them. And like, I went on to explain this further and further and, you know, I gave him all my credentials and everything. Yeah. And at the end he was like, well, I've done a lot of research on this. And it turns out like, he's just watched some videos and, and he lives in that area. Like <laughs> that's his research. And- yeah. And I think one of the things that is really interesting to me as a researcher of that behavior is the way in which it becomes so self-reinforcing. And so what I like, what you, what the normal antidote to that behavior would be, was be to provide other research, right? Like this is what you were looking at. And like, this is other research, but if those things are equivalent in that person's brain, often what that ends up doing is alienating them or sort of like pushing that person away. And so it's really this difficult intersection. And I think there's a lot of people who are kind of dealing with family members and stuff like that, where there's just, there's no way to redirect that conversation because there's equivalence there that didn't used to be. Yeah. He even referred me to this academic talk that was, was valid and everything. And actually the thing 
covered in the academic talk wasn't disagreeing with what I said, but because he didn't understand genetics that well, it was, but anyway, I want to go back to you. <laughs> so you have a, a publication or is this a book chapter? I'm really fascinated by this, partially because it does have to do with my, my research too, which I can explain afterwards, but so live cuteness, 24 oh. seven performing boredom on animal live streams in, yeah. as, in the aesthetics and effects of cuteness. So the last chapter of my dissertation was about animals on the internet, which is its whole thing. And one of the things that I stumbled upon doing that research were all of these feral intake cat cams, basically. So they were live streamed, like basically three or four webcams that had like a script that would switch between them based on motion of just kittens. And people would sit on YouTube for hours and hours and hours, me included, watching these kittens. <laughs> And these I'm, are feral cats? Is that what you um, said? So sometimes they're feral cats. There's there's probably, they proliferated in the kind of like six or seven years since I sort of originally turned on to this. And there were, there's thousands of them now. So sometimes they're foster kittens, like sometimes they're zoo kittens. Um, but as web streaming became more and more accessible, it started to be this really interesting tool to both educate people. So if you're watching a thing of feral cats that have sort of been like in this particular tiny kittens is the example, they will intake feral cats and kind of figure out which ones are amenable to being adopted and then release back neutered cats into the wild. And so it was really educational for people to learn the difference between like a kitten that they might've encountered in another space and like a feral kitten, which is deeply distrustful of humans and like will lash out and be violent. But I couldn't understand what was so soothing about it because like kittens aren't particularly interesting. <laughs> they just sort of sleep 20 hours a day. They're and cute though. That's what's interesting. They're very cute. And so this, these live streams were incredibly profitable for this nonprofit. So it was a way to like bring awareness. It was a way to, they monetize their YouTube stream. So it was really kind of building off the fact that people will watch this. But in that article, what I was talking about was the way in which that boredom can also be used as kind of an argumentative tool. So SeaWorld famously had a live stream of their orca tank to mm -hmm. like quote unquote prove that they weren't mistreating any of the orcas. And if you were to pop on for any like length of time, you would probably see an orca swimming around in a tank, like looking relatively docile. But the problem is that that behavior in itself is part of the problem with an orca. Like the tank was so small in order for the, like it just, it wasn't optimal conditions at all. And so the live stream was meant to reinforce the narrative that SeaWorld was pushing, that yeah. orcas were happy at SeaWorld, but all it did really was reinforce the, the conditions that people had such a problem with to begin with the orc is included. I'm just checking. I've been having the manatee cam on yes. <laughs> at Blue Springs Park. I just want to check to see if a manatee was there. I still haven't seen one live. I only see them during, at night, they do like the best of. Well, there's manatee cams. My favorite is Fat Bear Week, which is an incredibly popular <laughs> initiative through one of the Australian or the Alaskan. I don't know if it's a state park or a national park, but the bear live stream is really interesting. And I know that it's done a huge amount to sort of help people understand 
wildlife conservation in a way that's a lot more hands-off but is still kind of captivating but a lot of the bear camp is just watching bears like sit peacefully in the river <laughs> which I like but yeah and I'm I'm really interested in that because I care about conservation and you know there's in, in conservation as scientists we like to act like we're not biased but mm-hmm. but we are we have biases too and I mean people obviously have biases and part of government at work at least is protecting animals that people care about and there's yeah. going to be more money where where people care about so i'm really interested in the factors that influence like how people determine if an animal is deserving of a conservation effort. And then there's some really cool research, like looking at how scientists can maybe manipulate that. So, so like names of animals have been shown to be important. And even if the animal is not that cute, but you name it something like, like cuter or, or going (laughs) viral is obviously really important too nowadays. If you can get like, like the honey badger probably wasn't that charismatic before, but ever since that video came out, it's a, it's maybe it's kind of, people kind of forgot about it now, but like me. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's just so interesting and, and yeah, cuteness. It's just so hard to describe, but like when you see it, you know it. Yeah. And a lot of what my research ended up being about was the way, so my dissertation was the history of animals on film, which is too big. And someone should have told me that before I wrote four separate dissertations. Yeah, that's (laughs) pretended um, that it was one thing, but one of the things that this sort of dissertation as a whole argued was that film and sort of over the history of film has been a way to, because animals can't speak for themselves or kind of like ever really voice in on their own representation, that film has been this amazing medium to both kind of control the narrative around some of these spaces. Like I have a whole chapter on planet earth and the kind of BBC conservation efforts and where that was born and sort of the ways in which it does so much work to kind of bring attention to spaces and places and species that need to be preserved. But a lot of the early seasons of planet earth are just as much about Britain's colonization history of like where they had access to or like different places that their researchers were able to go. And it, I talk a lot about the reasons why they leave humans out of those, those documentaries sort of writ large. That's actually one of my frustrations because I started this career not not really wanting to involve people that much. Like I, I just wanted to like study the animals. And yeah. when I studied abroad in Kenya, we learned how impu- important humans were in conservation. And even then I was like, yeah, okay, I get it. But I still want to study the animals. Yeah. But now I'm like the opposite where I think that this, this urban wild interface is so interesting and you're right. There's so many interesting opportunities in these, in these films where, it's taken out. Like I remember there was a one scene with a bird of paradise and I'm, I'm pretty sure the bird of paradise was in like, like in somebody's backyard. Yeah. But if you watch it on planet earth, you think it's like in this remote forest in the middle of Southeast Asia somewhere. And, yeah. and there, you're missing on this opportunity that like, there's, there's cool stuff all around us. Yes. One of the things that I love about living in Pittsburgh and where I am specifically is that I'm really close to a huge nature preserve that's got like a cool historical history all its own, but it's like a couple hundred acres of, you know, as well preserved forest stand as you can for like a public access park. But one of the things that's been really interesting to 
that over the five-ish years that I've lived here is that there was a big Army Corps of Engineers project to redo the watershed and the way that it was draining into this park mm -hmm. because part of the issues with the park is that the water, there's beautiful rivers and sort of creeks all through the park, but they were so toxic because there was just, it was a main line from storm runoff into the park. And they really did a lot of work about 10 years ago to sort of reroute those things and the watershed and in the park specifically is just healthy enough now that there's a beaver. <laughs> They've had these sort of all of these markers of the returning health of this this like water system but the beaver is there now and it's actually this huge headache for them because it keeps eating all of the trees that they plant. <laughs> There's a really interesting play between the man-made interventions to make the space healthier but also the kind of like rewilding of the space that is one goal but I never really appreciated how complex those interactions were in an urban environment where I was like okay well there's people and then there are parks and then there are woods and the intersections are so messy and gore <laughs> it's cool yeah. One, I could talk to you forever about, now one of the things I'm, I'll end, I'll end soon. Cause we're almost running out of time, but I'm also really fascinated about the influence of social media on, on conservation, pet ownership, things like that, because I tend to believe that like showing pictures of you with animals, wild animals, whether they're captive or not is, is bad for wildlife because it contributes to the illegal take of animals or, you know, people, who are breeding dangerous animals and they probably shouldn't be even though it's legal. So, but yeah, that's like a whole, I could do a whole podcast. I have done a whole podcast about that, but I could do it. Yes. I think it's one of the hardest things that I sort of encountered was the dark history of grumpy cat, which is its own sort of like tantalizing social media thing. But what it, can cat, you tell us real quick? What, what yeah, I mean, like the short version of that is that grumpy cat, the way it has a face that looks grumpy and like it was a Reddit meme first, somebody posted it and then it kind of like spiraled from there into like millions of dollars at one point of like product deals and it sort of did meet and greets at South by Southwest and stuff. But the real cat's name was Tartar and Tartar had, it was basically like a congenital defect that gave it an underbite, but part of the defect was also that it was relatively less mobile than other cats were, which is why it was so amenable in quotes, to mm -hmm. things like meet and greets, like many cats, even the most docile of cats don't particularly love sitting on a cushion in a convention center. Plus thousands of people pay for the opportunity to take selfies with it. And so it was this kind of real double bind where the things that made this cat so eminently marketable were also the things that were probably leading directly to its in my opinion, horrific quality of life as like uh, a cat way against its nature. And like, that's a domestic cow's cat that in theory would be used to that. And I can't imagine the binds that you can get into with like a zoo fundraiser. Like, what does it mean to take a penguin to office, like to an office to show off like ice safety? Is that good for the penguin? Like, is that good for the zoo? Is yeah. it good enough to justify the $3,000 appearance fee? For the penguin i don't know yeah no there's so much gray area i agree it's and i i tend to not like photos that like i said of people touching wildlife but then there is stuff like like turtles i don't know if people are picking up like a box turtle is that so bad or a snake but yeah 
Well, anyway, thank you so much for, for this conversation. It really yeah. took a different turn, but, but yeah, it's been so interesting to talk to you yeah, and pleasure. I wish you luck in your business. And thanks. And same to you and may everything go well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. To academics turned entrepreneurs. <laughs> yes. May we all continue to thrive. So Thanks once again, Katie. That really was such a fun conversation. I mean, who wouldn't want to study cute animal videos? That's what I should have done. You can find Katie at thrive-phd.com and you can find all of her different resources there, her community, her one-on-one coaching. She has free resources. She has courses. You can network with her on Instagram at thrive-phd and on Twitter at Thrive PhD. Thanks guys for listening and I hope you have an amazing day. If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.